0: Book one, chapter one of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. Book One THE DAWN OF THE FOOD CHAPTER the I. THE DISCOVERY OF THE FOOD One. In the middle years of the nineteenth century, there first became abundant in this strange world of ours a class of men, men tending for the most part to become elderly, who are called, and who are very properly called, but who dislike extremely to be called scientists. They dislike that word so much that from the columns of Nature, which was from the first their distinctive and characteristic paper, it is as carefully excluded as if it were that other word, which is the basis of all really bad language in this country. But the great public and its press know better, and scientists they are. And when they emerge to any sort of publicity, distinguished scientists, and eminent scientists, and well-known scientists, is the very least we call them. Certainly, both Mr. Bensington and Professor Redwood quite merited any of these terms long before they came upon the marvelous discovery of which this story tells. Mr. Bensington was a fellow of the Royal Society and a former president of the Chemical Society and Professor Redwood was Professor of Physiology in the Bond Street College of the London University, and he had been grossly libeled by the anti-vivisectionists time after time, and they had led lives of academic distinction from their very earliest youth. They were, of course, quite undistinguished-looking men, as indeed all true scientists are. There is more personal distinction about the mildest-mannered actor alive than there is about the entire royal society. Mr. Bensington was short and very, very bald, and he stooped slightly. He wore gold-rimmed spectacles, and cloth boots that were abundantly cut open because of his numerous corns, and Professor Redwood was entirely ordinary in his appearance. Until they happened upon the food of the gods, as I must insist upon calling it, they led lives of such eminent and studious obscurity that it is hard to find anything whatever to tell the reader about them. Mr. Bensington won his spurs, if one may use such an expression of a gentleman in boots of slashed cloth, by his splendid researches upon the more toxic alkaloids, and Professor Redwood rose to eminence. I do not clearly remember how he rose to eminence. I know he was very eminent, And that's all. Things of this sort grow. I fancy it was a voluminous work on reaction times, with numerous plates of sphygmograph tracings I write subject to correction, and an admirable new terminology that did the thing for him. The general public saw little or nothing of either of these gentlemen. Sometimes at places like the Royal Institution and the Society of Arts, It did in a sort of way see Mr. Bensington, or at least his blushing baldness, and something of his collar and coat, and hear fragments of a lecture or paper that he imagined himself to be reading audibly. And once I remember, one midday in the vanished past, when the British Association was at Dover, coming on Section C or D or some such letter, which had taken up its quarters in a public house and following two serious-looking ladies with paper parcels, out of mere curiosity, through a door labeled Billiards and Pool into a scandalous darkness, broken only by a magic lantern circle of Redwood's tracings. I watched the lantern slides come and go, and listened to a voice, I forget what it was saying, which I believe was the voice of Professor Redwood, and there was a sizzling from the lantern, and another sound, that kept me there, still out of curiosity, until the lights were unexpectedly turned up. And then I perceived that this sound was the sound of the munching of buns and sandwiches and things that the assembled British associates had come there to eat under cover of the magic lantern darkness. And Redwood, I remember, went on talking all the time the lights were up, and dabbing at the place where his diagram ought to have been visible on the screen, and so it was again, so soon as the darkness was restored. I remember him, then, as a most ordinary, slightly nervous-looking dark man, with an air of being preoccupied with something else, and doing what he was doing just then under an unaccountable sense of duty. I heard Bensington also, once, in the old days, at an educational conference in Bloomsbury. Like most eminent chemists and botanists, Mr. Bensington was very authoritative upon teaching, though I am certain he would have been scared out of his wits by an average board school class in half an hour. And so far as I can remember now, he was propounding an improvement of Professor Armstrong's heuristic method, whereby, at the cost of three or four hundred pounds worth of apparatus, a total neglect of all other studies, and the undivided attention of a teacher of exceptional gifts, an average child might, with a peculiar sort of thummy thoroughness, learn in the course of ten or twelve years almost as much chemistry as one could get in one of those objectionable shilling textbooks that were then so common. Quite ordinary persons, you perceive, both of them, outside their science or, if anything, on the unpractical side of ordinary, and that, you will find, is the case with scientists as a class all the world over. What there is great of them is an annoyance to their fellow scientists, and a mystery to the general public, and what is not is evident. There is no doubt about what is not great. No race of men have such obvious littlenesses. They live in a narrow world, so far as their human intercourse goes. Their researches involve infinite attention and an almost monastic seclusion, and what is left over is not very much. To witness some queer, shy, misshapen, grey-headed, self-important, little discoverer of great discoveries, ridiculously adorned with the wide ribbon of some order of chivalry and holding a reception of his fellow men, or to read the anguish of nature at the neglect of science when the angel of the birthday honors passes the royal society by, or to listen to one indefatigable lichenologist commenting on the work of another indefatigable lichenologist. Such things force one to realize the unfaltering littleness of men. And withal, the reef of science that these little scientists built and are yet building is so wonderful so portentous, so full of mysterious half-shapen promises for the mighty future of man. They do not seem to realize the things they are doing. No doubt long ago, even Mr. Bensington, when he chose this calling, when he consecrated his life to the alkaloids and their kindred compounds, had some inkling of the vision, more than an inkling. Without some such inspiration, For such glories and positions only as a scientist may expect, what young man would have given his life to such work as young men do? No, they must have seen the glory, they must have had the vision, but so near that it has blinded them. The splendor has blinded them, mercifully, so that for the rest of their lives they can hold the lights of knowledge in comfort that we may see. And perhaps it accounts for Redwood's touch of preoccupation that, there can be no doubt of it now, he among his fellows was different. He was different inasmuch as something of the vision still lingered in his eyes. Two. The food of the gods, I call it. This substance that Mr. Bensington and Professor Redwood made between them and, having regard now to what it has already done, and all that it is certainly going to do, there is surely no exaggeration in the name. So I shall continue to call it, therefore, throughout my story. But Mr. Bensington would no more have called it that in cold blood than he would have gone out from his flat in Sloane Street, clad in regal scarlet and with a wreath of laurel. The phrase was a mere cry of astonishment from him. He called it the food of the gods in his enthusiasm, and for an hour or so at the most, altogether. After that, he decided he was being absurd. When he first thought of the thing, he saw, as it were, a vista of enormous possibilities, literally enormous possibilities, but upon this dazzling vista, after one stare of amazement, he resolutely shut his eyes, even as a conscientious scientist should. After that, the food of the gods sounded blatant to the pitch of indecency. He was surprised he had used the expression. Yet for all that, something of the clear-eyed moment hung about him, and broke out ever and again. "'Really, you know,' he said, rubbing his hands together and laughing nervously, "'it has more than a theoretical interest. For example—' he confided, bringing his face close to the professor's and dropping to an undertone. "'It would perhaps, if suitably handled, sell.' "'Precisely,' he said, walking away, "'as a food, or at least a food ingredient. Assuming, of course, that it is palatable, a thing we cannot know till we have prepared it.' He turned upon the hearthrug and studied the carefully designed slits upon his cloth shoes. "'Name?' he said, looking up in response to an inquiry. For my part, I incline to the good old classical illusion. It it makes science res gives it a touch of old-fashioned dignity. I have been thinking, I don't know if you will think it absurd of me. A little fancy is surely occasionally permissible. Heracleophobia. Uh, the nutrition of a possible Hercules. You know it might. Of course, if you think not. Redwood reflected with his eyes on the fire and made no objection. "'You think it would do?' Redwood moved his head gravely. "'It might be titanophobia, you know, food of titans. You prefer the former?' "'You're quite sure you don't think it a little, too?' "'No.' "'Ah, I'm glad.' And so they called it Heracleophobia throughout their investigations and in their report, the report that was never published because of the unexpected developments that upset all their arrangements, it is invariably written in that way. There were three kindred substances prepared before they hit on the one their speculations had foretold, and these they spoke of as Heracleophobia one, Heracleophobia II, and Heracleophobia three it is Heracleophobia four, which I, insisting upon Bensington's original name, call here the Food of the Gods. Three the idea was Mr. Bensington's, but as it was suggested to him by one of Professor Redwood's contributions to the philosophical transactions. He very properly consulted that gentleman before he carried it further. Besides which, it was, as a research, a physiological quite as much as a chemical inquiry. Professor Redwood was one of those scientific men who are addicted to tracings and curves. You are familiar, if you are at all the sort of reader I like, with the sort of scientific paper I mean. It is a paper you cannot make head nor tail of, and at the end come five or six long folded diagrams that open out and show peculiar zigzag tracings, flashes of lightning overdone, or sinuous inexplicable things called smoothed curves, set up on ordinates and rooting in abscissi, and things like that. You puzzle over the thing for a long time, and end with a suspicion that not only do you not understand it, but that the author does not understand it either. But really, you know, many of these scientific people understand the meaning of their own papers quite well. It is simply a defect of expression that raises the obstacle between us. I am inclined to think that Redwood thought in Tracings and Curves, and after his monumental work upon Reaction Times, The unscientific reader is exhorted to stick to it for a little bit longer, and everything will be clear as daylight. Redwood began to turn out smoothed curves and sphigmagraferes upon growth, and it was one of his papers upon growth that really gave Mr. Bensington his idea. Redwood, you know, had been measuring growing things of all sorts. Kittens, puppies, sunflowers, mushrooms, bean plants and, until his wife put a stop to it, his baby, and he showed that growth went on, not at a regular pace, or, as he put it, so. Diagram of a straight line going gently upwards, but with bursts and intermissions of this sort. Diagram of a line going gently up by steps, and that apparently nothing grew regularly and steadily, and so far as he could make out, nothing could grow regularly and steadily. It was as if every living thing had just to accumulate force to grow, grew with vigor only for a time, and then had to wait for a space before it could go on growing again. And in the muffled and highly technical language of the really careful scientist, Redwood suggested that the process of growth probably demanded the presence of a considerable quantity of some necessary substance in the blood that was only formed very slowly, and that when this substance was used up by growth, it was only very slowly replaced, and that meanwhile, the organism had to mark time. He compared his unknown substance to oil and machinery. A growing animal was rather like an engine, he suggested, that can move a certain distance, and must then be oiled before it can run again. "'But why shouldn't one oil the engine from without?' said Mr. Bensington when he read the paper. "'And all this,' said Redwood, with the delightful nervous inconsecutiveness of his class, "'might very probably be found to throw a light upon the mystery of certain of the ductless glands, "'as though they had anything to do with it at all.' In a subsequent communication, Redwood went further. He gave a perfect Brock's benefit of diagrams, exactly like rocket trajectories they were, and the gist of it, so far as it had any gist, was that the blood of puppies and kittens and the sap of sunflowers and the juice of mushrooms in what he called the growing phase differed in the proportion of certain elements from their blood and sap on the days when they were not particularly growing. And when Mr. Bensington, after holding the diagrams sideways and upside down, began to see what this difference was, a great amazement came upon him. Because, you see, the difference might probably be due to the presence of just the very substance he had recently been trying to isolate in his researches upon such alkaloids as are most stimulating to the nervous system. He put down Redwood's paper on the patent reading desk that swung inconveniently from his armchair, took off his gold rimmed spectacles, breathed on them, and wiped them very carefully. "By Jove!" said Mr. Bensington. Then replacing his spectacles again, he turned to the patent reading desk, which immediately, as his elbow came against its arm, gave a coquettish squeak, and deposited the paper, with all its diagrams in a dispersed and crumpled state, on the floor. "'By Jove!' said Mr. Bensington, straining his stomach over the armchair with a patient disregard of the habits of this convenience, and then, finding the pamphlet still out of reach, he went down on all fours in pursuit. It was on the floor that the idea of calling it the food of the gods came to him. For you see, if he was right, and Redwood was right, then by injecting or administering this new substance of his in food, he would do away with the resting phase, and instead of growth going on in this fashion, diagram of a line going gently up by steps, it would, if you follow me, go thus, diagram of a straight line going sharply upwards. 4. The night after his conversation with Redwood, Mr. Bensington could scarcely sleep a wink. He did seem once to get into a sort of doze, but it was only for a moment, and then he dreamt he had dug a deep hole into the earth, and poured in tons and tons of the food of the gods, and the earth was swelling and swelling, and all the boundaries of the countries were bursting, and the Royal Geographical Society was all at work like one great guild of tailors letting out the equator. That, of course, was a ridiculous dream, but it shows the state of mental excitement into which Mr. Bensington got, and the real value he attached to his idea, much better than any of the things he said or did when he was awake and on his guard. Or I should not have mentioned it, because, as a general rule, I do not think it is at all interesting for people to tell each other about their dreams by a singular coincidence redwood also had a dream that night and his dream was this diagram of a straight line going directly upwards it was a diagram done in fire upon a long scroll of the abyss and he redwood was standing on a planet before a sort of black platform lecturing about the new sort of growth that was now possible to the more-than-royal institution of primordial forces, forces which had always previously, even in the growth of races, empires, planetary systems, and worlds, gone so. Diagram of a line going up by tiny steps. And even in some cases so. Diagram of a line going gently up by steps then curving downwards again. And he was explaining to them, quite lucidly and convincingly, that these slow, these even retrogressive methods, would be very speedily quite put out of fashion by his discovery. (laughs) Ridiculous, of course, but that too shows... that either dream is to be regarded as in any way significant or prophetic beyond what I have categorically said, I do not for one moment suggest. End of chapter one.